could I just I could comment just right on the last few words of that. It says speaks of God satisfying us with honey from the rock. What a what a what a what an image, right? The notion of honey found within a rock. You know, we think of hard things in our life, difficult things. Think of treacherous cliff or some sort of air, you know, some sort of a rock formation that is dangerous, that is cold, that is unforgiving. And, and yet that's how often life is. It's so hard. And we don't, so we don't expect, we don't believe that God can actually bring something sweet, something satisfying from those hard things in our lives. And are we willing to listen to Him? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to ask Him and, I mean, and open wide our mouths to walk in his to, to listen to him, to walk in his ways. And he promises us satisfaction, the finest of wheat, honey, something sweet, something nourishing, something satisfying from the rock, from the things that are difficult in life. This morning uh, we're going to be continuing our series called Not My Wills. We're going through the, this section of the book of Luke together. If you want to follow along as I read it, it's on page 872 of your, your blue pew Bible there. You should see that in front of you if you want to follow along. Again, that's page 872. As you're turning there, I want to share with you a few stories that are, are in some ways difficult to tell, but, but necessary because they communicate something that's very important, but very ugly. You know what that is? Insensitivity. Insensitivity. There are few things in life uglier than insensitivity. I, can, I know a, a, a friend of mine who, uh, this is several a number of years ago, he's a doctor, and he and his wife, he and his wife were both doctors. And his wife was a pediatrician, a phenomenal pediatrician. In fact, she had gotten a full ride to one of the finest state schools uh, in America. And it was a, was a um, pre-med student. And then after that, was able, got a significant uh, scholarship. You just don't get scholarships usually at med school. But she got a, a scholarship to med- medical school. was a phenomenal, I mean, a phenomenal pediatrician. In fact, when, when she got married... Um, she wanted to actually, she thought about having kids. She really wanted to have a family. And she thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just, I'm going to walk away from all this. I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I, I just, you know, and, and the, the hospital pleaded with her, said, name your price, name your hours. We want you to be, continue, however, you know, to be a pediatrician at this hospital because we just think you're so gifted. And so sure enough, she arranged this wonderful, you know, wonderful arrangement there work-wise. And uh, she, they had their first baby. And about a week, two weeks, three weeks into, uh, into this child's infancy, she was not doing well at all. Struggling deeply with sleep deprivation. A tremendous sense of depression, discouragement, despondency, overwhelmed, feeling powerless. And one day, her husband was leaving the house in the morning to go to work, She's in tears. And he turns to her and he says, you know, I just thought you'd handle this a lot better. I was with him at a bar when he told me that he had said that. It's <laughs> me and two other guys. And both of us went, oh! <laughs> like, oh, what, what a heartless thing to say. And he said, in his, in his, in his, you know, in his defense, 
He said, as soon as I said it, I knew I'd said the worst possible thing. That insensitivity, it's ugly, isn't it? Or think of a, a friend of mine I, I know who, uh, just a really great guy, he and I hang out quite a bit. He's, um, he once told me a story of, of when he was a kid, a very memorable event as a child. He was playing baseball, a baseball game, and he, um, he was at bat, strike one, strike two, strike three. And he walked back to the, uh, the, dug, the uh, dugout, and uh, his dad came up behind him and said, Son, why can't you just hit the ball? Why can't you just hit the ball? See, that insensitivity, that compassionlessness, so ugly. So ugly. Another story, a Duke medical student. Uh, I knew, we came to my church, uh, and uh, he was um, telling me a story just about how he had this amazing opportunity, this incredible opportunity to work with one of the world experts in his field of training. He was so excited, you know, in his specialization. And he would, the first day, he went around like, on rounds with this, this, this world expert, this doctor. And within minutes was simply mortified, horrified by this world expert's complete lack of bedside manner. The way that he treated the, the patients was like something to be fixed, not a someone who needed care. See, it's that, again, that ugliness, that, that, that insensitivity that can be so incredibly ugly. And I'll say this, you know, one of the most difficult things, gang, one of the most difficult things in pastoral ministry is to watch Christians view others, a spouse, a child, a family member, a co-worker, with absolutely no compassion to look at them with a cutting clinical cold-heartedness that says, you know what? I'm so done with you. I'm so ready to wash my hands and walk away. It is so hard to see, you know. Now, some of you may not know who Francis Schaeffer was. Francis Schaeffer was the, um, he was the, kind of a, a key father of an, of our denomination in the Presbyterian Church in America. I never forget him writing these words. He wrote these words, often quoted, rightly so. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. See, you can have all your theological T's crossed, I's dotted, and yet, he says, orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest things in the world. And one of my greatest sins as a pastor is this. Are you ready? Having no compassion on those who have no compassion. Looking at those who, conde looking at those who condemn others and condemning them. Being cold-hearted toward the cold-hearted. Right? With complete hypocrisy. I can heartlessly growl. Oh, come on! Have a heart! 
right? Really? That's your pastor. Struggling to have compassion on those who have no compassion. What, what, what's, what's completely wrong? And see, this passage that we're about to read, this passage is for, it's for all of us this morning. It is. But you know who it's, who it's especially for? It's for me. See, the passage is about a synagogue ruler, about a church, about a church leader who is cold-hearted and compassionless. Let's read these words together again. It's found on page 872 of your pew Bible. Hear now the word of the living God. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. The word of the Lord. Now this, you know, sometimes passages in Scripture are difficult to understand. There's a lot of explanation. But this one, not so much. It's kind of wonderfully, in some ways, straightforward. But that doesn't mean that it's easy to do or easy to learn. Here's the key idea that I want you to hear this morning, quite simply. God's kingdom comes through compassion. God's kingdom comes through caring, through compassion. And let me say it this way too. Let me add a, a further adverb there. God's kingdom comes through compassion quietly. Quietly. Let me say it a different way. Some of you may know the word, what a catalyst is. A catalyst, right? A catalyst is something that ignites or precipitates an event. Compassion is the quiet catalyst of the kingdom of God. Compassion. Let me, let me make a contrast here. It's compassion, not compliance. Not mere cold obedience. It's compassion, not compliance that brings in the kingdom of God, that is the, the catalyst 
for the kingdom, okay? So what is compassion? We're going to see this beautiful picture of compassion in this passage. Compassion is that is setting another free from what binds them. Compassion is when we look at others and we see in their lives things that are holding them back, that are holding them down, things that are constraining them, things that, that, are, that are keeping them from being the best of the best, keeping them from being how God made them to be. And it could be everything from a sickness to sin, you name it. It's something that is truly harming the person and seeing that, how it is constraining, how it is hurting, how it is debilitating them and, want, and working towards setting them free. Now let's look here. Let's look at this passage together. Look in verse 10. We get the setting. Here's the setting in verse 10. It says, Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And the synagogues were, you know, actually there's a lot that we don't know about the synagogues. It's one of the, th- one of the mysteries of the first century world. The synagogues, we don't quite know their origin, but they were places of gathering, of worship, and, and actually not just worship, but other business. And, uh, and, and, and they would, this is a place of, of where they would be, the, the word would be read, and there would be, um, there would be songs sung, very much like a, you know, somewhat like a church that we think of today. And Jesus is teaching one of the synagogues. He's done that before. And actually, this, this, in this passage, this is the last time that Jesus will be in a, will be in a synagogue. And, uh, and it's partly because there's so much conflict. I mean, the previous times already in Luke, Jesus has been in synagogues and things have not gone well. And there's opposition, and we're seeing that today. But that's, what's most important is that Jesus is teaching on the, uh, in, not just in a synagogue, but he's teaching on the Sabbath. The Sabbath. What, what is the Sabbath? Okay, the Sabbath was instituted for the people of God as a day of rest. Literally, the word Shabbat in Hebrew means to cease. People often think it means to rest, and it kind of means that, but to me more to cease. That is to cease your labors, to stop whatever it is you've been doing for the last six days, and cease and rest. And the notion is, is simply this, that it is a day of recognizing all that God has done for us. It's a day when we stop and say, you know what? God has provided so richly for me. He's our creator. That's why in six days, God made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh, he rested. Why did he rest? Because what? There was nothing more to do. It was all done. Right? Think of, I think if you, when, when those of when you were, so if you've been a parent, right, and you think of, you know, the first, especially if you're, you know, parents of the first kid, uh, you, you, you know, you, you think way ahead of time about the nursery and you get it all ready and you do all this work. And then, one, and then, you know, several months beforehand or some weeks beforehand, what? You're done. The nursery's done. Why? There's nothing more to do. It's all perfect, all ready, all ready to go. And that's how the Sabbath was. This, this, this notion of the Sabbath is that God has provided for his people, for humanity, in a perfect way, all sufficient, all, everything we've got so we can stop and we can rest. But it wasn't just a day of celebrating God's provision. It was a day of celebrating God's, God's redemption, all that he had done. And so we see later in Deuteronomy how the Sabbath and the Sabbath day and the Sabbath years are days that commemorate, that recall God's perfect provision of salvation. And are you ready for this? The Sabbath is a day that especially celebrates Israel's release from bondage. Did you get that? A release from bondage. 
And it was so important that God actually said, you know what? This Sabbath day is so important. It celebrates the key event in the, in the whole life and the whole story of Israel that you really need to, to, you really need to observe this day. Because this is a day that you will remember the story, that you'll recall that the release, that you have been released from bondage. And here's what's so important. Are you ready for this? See, if you go and you read the fourth commandment, you'll see that it's not just the, the commandment isn't just given to you to celebrate yourself. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall rest, and then it gives this long list. You and your wife and your children and your maidservants and your manservants and even, the, and even, are you ready for this? The alien within your gates, the foreigner, the outsider, they are to rest too. No one's to work. And they're ready for this? Not even the alien within your gates, not even the slaves, what? Your ox and your donkey, they're even to rest on this side. Everybody, no one's doing anything. It's a day of rest. In fact, there's one British uh, lawmaker who called the fourth commandment the single greatest labor law ever passed. And it is. It's true. Because it gives everyone. So me, obeying the Sabbath command means that every, me and my, all who are under my care are resting. And it was crucial to remember the Sabbath day because once you forgot the Sabbath day, what happened to the little people? What happened to the maidservants, the manservants? What happened to the alien, the foreigner within the gates? What happened? You kept him working. And so the Sabbath was tied up with oppression. You know, failing to observe the Sabbath was tied up with injustice and oppression. And therefore, as you read the prophets, you'll see that they will criticize Israel. They will call out to Israel and say, look, you better watch it. You're not observing the Sabbath. And if you don't, I'm, I'm taking you out of the land. You will go into exile. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are prophets who are insisting that you observe the Sabbath or else you're going out. And so in the wake, when that happened, Israel didn't listen. And sure enough, they're, they're taken in the land of exile into Babylon. And then when they're brought back, you have a movement. You have a movement within the people of God that says what? We got kicked out of exile. We got kicked out of the land of, of Canaan. Why? Because we didn't observe the Sabbath. So you better observe the Sabbath. You better comply because that's what it's all about. It's about compliance. Does that make sense? Do you see the, the, the rationale? Do you see the reason why the Sabbath was so important, why people were like, hey, don't mess with the Sabbath? And so we can see where this, where this synagogue ruler is coming from a little bit. Yeah, you see? He's actually trying to keep God's people from getting kicked back out of, out of the land again. He's concerned that they observe the Sabbath. And yet, he's concerned about compliance and not what is at the heart of the Sabbath, which is compassion, setting someone free. And we see that here. It's so beautiful. Look at this picture. It's right there in verse 12. Do you see it? Just, just notice these, this simple picture here. Again, this is chapter 13, uh, verse 12. It's such a beautiful scene here. Verse 12, when Jesus 
saw her. Stop. What's the first thing that compassion does? It sees someone. Do you know how many invisible people there are in this world? People that just, you just walk right by them. Right? And I'm not talking about people in the street or something. I'm talking about people that you see regularly on a daily basis, that you and I interact with. People that the world never notices. And some of you feel that way. You feel just invisible. It's like, am I here? Does anyone see me? Does anyone know what I'm going through? People are coming and going in the synagogue. And Jesus stops. And he sees her. He sees her. That's where compassion begins. There's a scene. But it doesn't stop there. Actually, Jesus, what's the next thing Jesus does? It says that when Jesus saw her, he, he called her over. He summoned her. He, he, he drew near to her. He, you know, he said, hey, c- come to me. Like, I want to talk to you. I want to come near to me. There's a sense of presence. Closeness. I'm mean, not going to see you from over here. Come, come over here. There's a summoning. Compassion draws near. It's not afraid to, grow, to go close with someone who's in need, someone who's hurting, someone who's sinful, someone who is, is in a situation where they are, there, there's something in their life that is holding them in bondage. Jesus sees her. He, su- he summons her. And then He speaks to her. In verse 12, he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. See, Jesus actually, he didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have to speak. It wasn't like magic words or something. He wanted to speak to her. Woman, you were free from disability. And that's the next thing he does here. He sees her, he summons her, he speaks to her, and he sets her free. Woman, you are freed from your disability. And then 13, in a beautiful gesture, Jesus, what does he do? He reaches out his hand and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Do you know, you know what's one of the saddest things about Western culture is, the, is how we have become so hyper-sexualized. You can't, I mean, as a minister, I have to be very careful in terms of physical touch. Very careful. And so often I'll even ask people, can I, can, I, can I have permission to hug you? But you know what? There are people in this church, there are people out there regularly who will go weeks, in fact, they'll go even months without anyone ever touching them. No one puts their arm around them. No one hugs them. No one draws near, you know, gives them a fun bump on their shoulder or something. No one touches them. And Jesus, in this beautiful act, sees her, summons her, speaks to her, and stretches out his hands and gives and, and, and places his hands on her to release her, to set her free. This is a beautiful, simple, but beautiful picture of compassion. In response to this, again, I'm not going to spend this time because I've explained it. You can see the motive of the synagogue ruler. He responds with an indignation, with a frustration, wanting to protect the Sabbath, not wanting to say, you know, this can happen on any day. You know, it's been 18 years. Surely it can wait another day. Right? And Jesus, in response, 
uses the uses the uses words from the fourth commandment in a beautiful way where he he speaks very strongly verse 15 the lord answered him you hypocrite you hypocrites so he's not just speaking to him but others who were watching you hypocrites do not does not each of you on the sabbath untie and here the greek here word for untie can also be translated loose right to to set free does not each of you in the sabbath set free his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to, to, to lead it away to water it and ought not this woman a daughter of abraham see that that, that term of dignity that phrase what, what a beautiful phrase I, this, this should not this daughter of abraham whom satan has bound for 18 years also be what loose the same greek verb be loose or set free from this bond on the sabbath day Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't understand the commandment is not there for just compliance. The commandment, the fourth commandment, is all about compassion. In fact, compliance to the fourth commandment would actually be compassion. <laughs> that's, that's truly following the Sabbath. And you can see the prophets speak of that. Isaiah 58 speaks so powerfully, so convictingly. He says, I, I, I'm not, I don't want you just to fast on the Sabbath. I don't want you just to start, just do these things on the Sabbath. I want you to show compassion. I want you to set people free. I want you to give. I want your heart to be broken for those around you. Just as I have set you free from Egypt, just as I have set you free from your sin, just as I have set you free from the bonds of death and evil and the evil one, I want you to be an agent of compassion in this world. So let's just ask the question. For every single one of us here, every single one of us, there are people for whom we have no compassion. And it may be certain persons, right? It may be a spouse, maybe a sibling, maybe a coworker, maybe a supervisor. But maybe a group of people, a certain kind of people, right? I mean, those Republicans, oh, those Democrats, right? Those people. I have a pastor friend of mine shared with me a story about at their church, they had um, a men's purity group, men meeting weekly, struggling with sexual sin. And that, that, that men's purity group met the same time that there were some junior high, was junior high girls basketball practice and there's a large church and they had a gymnasium and uh and and a mom came up to the pastor on sunday and said um i don't know if you know this pastor but uh there's a men's purity group um meeting at the same time as you know this junior high girls playing basketball and he said um no that's yeah actually i, I did know that well, and she kind of paused and she says well you just never know about those people Right? Those people. Now listen, is sexual sin, a, is, that a, is, that a, is that a serious problem? Should we exercise caution and be wise? Of course. Absolutely. But can we refer to those people as those people? Those people, because we're just so different. See, all of us struggle. We have people, we look at their struggles, we look at their situations, and we think, what in the world is wrong with you? In the, in the military, I was, spent 10 years in the military, and we would say it this way, what is your major malfunction? That's what we say. Cadet Clark, what is your major malfunction? Sir, I do not know. Right? 
But we do, we have this cold, cold-hearted, compassionless sense of why can't you get this right? Son, why can't you just hit the ball? And you know what? There are certain sins, there are certain struggles that we as a church have made anathema. You cannot be a a sex addict. You cannot be an adulterer. You cannot be, you certainly can't be gay. Right? And it's horrible. It is horrible the way that, that we have just ostracized. And it's we as in me, as in like we church leadership. But so often the congregation falls right along with it. And this place becomes a place of compliance. Clinical and cold instead of a place of compassion, a place of setting someone free. So let me ask you, as you think of that person or persons, as you think of that group of people, what would it look like to begin to, to, to see them, to really see and know them? Go back to our, my first story, this doctor who looks at his wife, a pediatrician, and he's thinking, of all people, Surely a pediatrician, a really good pediatrician, surely a great pediatrician is going to be someone who's a great, who can just do this whole pregnancy, delivery, infancy thing with no problem. Surely that's the case, right? No. <laughs> no. Not at all. It's like really hard. It's like, like almost impossible. Yeah, ladies? I mean, it's just, of course... Of course there's depression, of course there's despair, of course this is is so impossible, this is so hard. To see that, to walk in their shoes, to listen, even sin itself. You know, Jesus is, Luke chapter 5, Jesus is having, um, he's having, uh, you know, dinner with, um, with uh, Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who's just began to follow him, and he's there, and he's with tax collectors and sinners. And again, the Pharisees say, why, why is your teacher, they ask the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? See, the paradigm through which they're seeing these people is through that of sin, transgression, wrongdoing. They're blowing it again. And why are you eating it? Why are you eating with these people who can't get it right? That's what I do. I think, man, these people just don't get it right. I do. Sometimes I'm this cold-hearted pastor. So sad. And Jesus takes, he responds, and he says, you know what? Listen to this metaphor. They're using the metaphor of transgression, of sinning, of not being able to get it right. And Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Why does Jesus use that metaphor? I mean, they're sinning. Isn't that sickness? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, there are many metaphors in Scripture for sin and for the, the brokenness that we have, and one of them is sickness. Jesus isn't trying to relieve them of culpability or responsibility. He's saying sin debilitates. Sin is harmful. Sin, the, the sinner themselves isn't getting away with anything. Sin destroys yourself. Don't you have any compassion? That's what Jesus is saying. Compassion. So what would it look like? And again, you may need some help. Come talk to me. Come talk to a trusted brother or sister in the Lord and say, look, I am struggling to have compassion. 
And you know what? Often their greatest struggles for compassion are the struggles with those closest to us because we know them. Well, if you knew my wife, if you knew my husband, and if you knew my, right, if you knew my father, it's those closest to us that we struggle most to have compassion. And so you may need help. You may need someone to come alongside from the outside who hasn't been wounded like you have, who hasn't been hurt like you have, who isn't invested in it like you are, and say, hey, look, I need help having, compa- having compassion. Because, gang, here's the heavy word today. Our compassionlessness, our cold-heartedness towards someone, it may say something about them. I'm sure it does. They're a difficult person. But you know what? Our cold-heartedness, at the end of the day, says more about us. says more about us. If He has compassion, if God has had compassion on us, how can we not have compassion on others? If He has had mercy toward us, how can we not have mercy toward others? The very heart, the very heart of the Christian God is compassion. When God revealed Himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, Moses right, is hiding in the rock there. He turns around. God puts His hand over. He turns come back. And he says, you can't see my face, but I'll see my back. And we hear God proclaiming Himself. I am the Lord, the Lord, the Mighty One. No. The what? The compassionate. That's the first adjective that God uses to describe Himself. Isn't that crazy? The first one, the compassionate God. That's God the Father. And then God the Son. What does God the Son do? He just, he just doesn't just beam down a few minutes before the crucifixion, does He? He spends 30 three years walking in your shoes and in mine, bearing all manner of temptation, all manner of rejection and betrayal, all manner of loneliness, all manner of abuse and slander. There is nothing that you will, you and I will ever experience that he has not first experienced. He has gone before you into your pain and loss and sorrow and temptation. He knows That's compassion. Jesus is compassion incarnate. That's Father, that's the Son, and finally there's the Spirit. And who does Jesus call the Spirit? The Comforter. Isn't that beautiful? The Comforter, the Advocate, the Paraclete, the one who comes alongside and says, it's okay. You're not a lost cause. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm your Advocate. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune compassion. Let me close with this. Jesus, night before, night of, that night that he was betrayed, was doing what? What was he doing? The Last Supper, right? It was an awkward supper. Have you ever read this? Do you know how awkward that supper was? Well, what was the, was the argument going on? What, was, what were the disciples arguing about? You remember? They're arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> hey, yeah, Peter, you're great and all, but, you know, I, John, am greater. I mean, what a, what a horrible conversation. And this wasn't the first time. Back in Luke 9, they were arguing about this. And now, literally, it's the end of Jesus' ministry, and they still don't get it. And not only that, Jesus says, look, tonight, 
You're all going to fall away on account of me. And what does Peter say? Nah, we're good. We got this. Because we're so committed to you, Jesus. We're so, we got, and then Jesus quotes Squipper from Zechariah saying, I will strike the sheep, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Oh no, Scripture's wrong. We got this. We're fine. So here's Jesus with these followers who still don't get it. Arguing about greatness. Insisting on their faithfulness. And Jesus says to them, are you ready for this? I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that is compassion. In your compassionlessness and your cold-heartedness, Jesus is calling you in compassion, saying, I desire to eat this meal with you. See, this meal is about one thing. It's about the one who was perfectly compassionate receiving absolutely no compassion from anyone. There on the cross, they scoffed him. There on the cross, his followers had left him. And there on the cross, his father looked down and said, go away. And he turned his back on his only son. Why did Jesus do that? Why was he so willing to live a life of compassion, knowing that it would only end in just utter cold-heartedness, brutality? He did it for, out of love, out of love for you and for me, out of love for cold-hearted, calloused people. This is a beautiful meal. It's a, it's a meal for the cold-hearted Let us pray and let us enter in together. Heavenly Father, what a meal that you have given us now to, to participate in. How beautiful, how majestic, how filled to the brim with compassion, with a blood that speaks of purification, of being set free from all that binds us, set free from sin and shame and guilt, set free from our defilement, set free from the slavery of sin, set free from evil and the evil one and from death itself. What a table. So Father, we know that in your love you made us for yourself. And when we'd fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you sent Jesus to share in our human nature to know our every struggle or every temptation, and to live and to die as one of us in order to reconcile us to you. There on the cross, he offered himself in obedience to your will as a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have your bulletin there,